Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. The first time I attempted to play Minecraft with my then seven-year-old son, we immediately dug ourselves into a pit in the earth and could not get out. In spite of the crappy 8-bit graphics, all of our primal HP Lovecraftian terrors of the underground were activated. We were trapped. We were lost. We might die down here. Will Hunt, on the other hand, has been climbing eagerly since childhood into dank and disorienting tunnels, caves, sewers, and other underground spaces, from abandoned New York City subway platforms to ancient Mayan temples of human sacrifice in the caverns of Belize. In his brilliant new book, Underground, he takes us physically and spiritually along on some of these adventures. Part global subterranean travelogue, part meditation on human curiosity, Underground plums the philosophical depths of our primal awe of what lies beneath, and it almost makes me want to go play Minecraft, where at least there are no rats. Welcome to Think Again, Will. Thanks so much. Rats is not really a fair characterization of, of, of most of your journeys, although there have been rats, yes? There have been rats in the sewers in Paris. I definitely encountered some rats. You know, it's never fun to see them. It's always a little exciting, but never a good sign. Yeah, are you phobic of anything related to the underground? Because um, I, I think I'm scared of almost everything related to the underground. <laughs> like, I'm claustrophobic and I'm afraid of rats. I'm not actively claustrophobic. <laughs> I have definitely had moments where I'm, you know, in a really tight cave passage or, you know, in a narrow space and, and something kind of wells up inside of me. And I'm like, oh, God. But generally, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more attracted to these spaces than repelled by them. I will say I'm terrified of deep ocean, which people always laugh at. Okay. Yeah, deep, dark water is as makes my palms sweat immediately you have gone to many fascinating places and so you grew up in rhode island and there was like an abandoned sort of train tunnel was it is that what what, what kind of tunnel was that, that so you were it, was, it was it was an abandoned uh an abandoned railroad tunnel railroad tunnel yeah how old were you when you started doing that i came across that tunnel for the first time when i was 16 years old okay um and it was this thrilling moment that totally threw me for a loop because it turned out to run directly beneath my house in my little neighborhood on the east side of Providence, very familiar territory. I thought I knew every nook and cranny and one day someone revealed this tunnel to me and it ran beneath the place I knew the best. So I developed this kind of fascination with it. I would go down there all the time and I did not have <laughs> the self-awareness as a 16-year-old to really articulate what it was about the tunnel that so excited me. But it was something about having this space that offered this otherworldly experience beneath you know, a place that I knew very well. It's sort of the anti-town or whatever. It's a little bit reminding me of the in Stranger Things that what is that other place called? The backward or whatever it is. The upside like, down. The upside down. It's reminding me a bit of that. It's sort of the upside down of the town. These spaces all over the world that you've been to, the underground in general, the hidden spaces that we, that we don't know about or we don't mostly go to, they are basically the opposite of this other human impulse that we have of mapping and knowing and orienting and sort of mastery. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> it's like, you know, the surface of the earth is where we're rational. It's where things are logical, where we can use certain brain functions to make sense of our surroundings. And down underground in pitch darkness, it's 
chaos. It's irrational. You know, in the allegory of the cave, Plato says that to attain logic and rationality and wisdom and enlightenment, you ascend out of the cave. But to go deeper into the cave is to touch upon something more ancient and more primal and elemental. I think part of us always dreads that chaos and part of us is always attracted to it. I think that's it's very natural. I think I share this with you, not specifically in the underground realm, but just philosophically, this sense that going into those spaces of irrationality or possibility somehow offers more for us, offers offers something bigger for us. And, and also a little bit of like, and I try to avoid this, but a certain sort of hostility and sense of dichotomy with what seems like the half or quarter or third or whatever of humanity that seems obsessed with order and rationality above all else. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a lovely way to put it. And I think you can kind of, you can use the underground as a metaphor to talk about anything we do. It's, it's our primary metaphor for exploration and being inquisitive and, and trying to get to the root of a problem. See, there's a metaphor right there. We get to the root of things. We take <laughs> deep dives. We, right. we dig for truth. You know, it's where, it's where the secrets lie. So let's talk about some of those secrets. I want to talk a little bit about the underground cities in Cappadocia in Turkey. I've, I've been to them myself. Let's talk a bit about what you found down there. Cappadocia is in the center of Turkey. It's this broad sort of volcanic plateau, which is to say the soil there is very soft. It's called tough and it's very easy to dig into and also strong. It's, it can harden easily. So it's prime for burrowing. And in Cappadocia, you find that People for thousands of years have been digging dwellings into the earth and, you know, some are very small and just like a one family home. Right. And then in some cases, they're vast. They're these underground cities, as they're called, which can go down 10 or 15 levels. They have space for thousands of people. They're like these underground upside down castles. And I read about these spaces and, you know, just had to go see them. And what astonished me is how many of them there are. Mm. You know, there's one beneath almost every modern settlement in Cappadocia. And, and many that haven't been excavated. Oh, exactly. Many, 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 right? Yes. So a couple of them are open to tourists. But if you go to any little village in Cappadocia, so one of the only Turkish phrases I knew was Yeralti Seri, which means mm -hmm. underground city. So I would arrive in a small village in the middle of Cappadocia and, and walk to the center of town and say Yeralti Seri. And someone would like nod and take me to the entrance of the underground city. And these spaces, some of them are still contain artifacts. They're really uh, extraordinary. I was surprised by some of the featurelessness of them. I mean, I related to what you were saying, actually, when you were describing them initially, like your first journeys down, you were like, it was hard for me, I think you said, to wrap my mind around these spaces. And then, you know, I was going through tunnels and they're sort of round rooms, but compared with the above ground, sort of hollowed out volcanic cones that were used as early churches and so on that have painting in them and so on. Most of the underground cities I visited were sort of like 
ant colonies. Exactly. Well, as, you, as you point out. Right. So they're weirdly featureless. They're illegible. That's the, that, that was the phrase I was using. So I was going through these spaces and trying to process them in my mind. And it was, they're, they're hard to read. And they've also been very difficult to study for archaeologists mm. um, who know some things about them. We know that they were used as refuges, as sort of defense shelters. So Yeah, my, my original understanding was that when Christianity was illegal under the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, right. that Roman soldiers were coming to pursue Christians and they were hiding underground in these right. places. That's part of it. Right. And yet some of them are much older so some of them are going back to the Hittite era and even before. And wow, yeah. what's, what's strange about studying an underground city or a series of tunnels like this as an archaeologist is that every subsequent culture that occupies them and expands them cleans out the artifacts, you know, whatever's left behind by the previous occupants. So right, you, you right. don't really know anything. So you have... They get erased. They get erased. So they're kind of, they have this, I remember one archaeologist described Describing them as having this melancholic way of existing outside of time, which I thought was beautiful. But it also, in another beautiful way, they're totally enigmatic. There's a lot we can't learn about them. So when we went to Cappadocia, one of the times my wife and I rented scooters and we went to some tiny little town, not one of them. We were in Gureme and Derinquia and all that, but like we went to some tiny little town and we were exploring those sort of churches and dwellings that are above ground. But in one of them, it kind of like sank down into the earth. And then, you know, it was like partly exposed. And, and what's so magical about these places, as I'm sure you found, is that the, they're not preserved and sort of excavated and roped off many of them in the way that artifacts are in the world we know, in the West, you know Western world. And so under this house was this tunnel and it was extending into the darkness. And I don't think our phones had flashlights at that time, but like we could see that back there in the darkness, there was a mesa shaped table oh, and we were just too scared to go. I wish we had had a flashlight or, or the cojones or whatever. Right. You know? I, I remember meeting an older man who had discovered an underground city. He was a farmer and on his land, you know, I think it was in the sixties, he was prodding at the ground at a place where water was sort of uh, draining out mm. and he revealed an underground city which has turned out to be like 10 stories deep it's this massive vast wow. sort of architectural wonder and i was talking to him translating through his son and i said how did it feel to make this discovery and this man his name is latif said no they're they're everywhere they're natural here we know them all it wasn't <laughs> a big deal no big it was, deal yeah it was just you know i knew it was there it was just i happened to be the one that uncovered it which was i thought was a beautiful answer you were talking about these spaces existing outside of time. And that's something interesting that comes up in your book, Time and the Underground. This is one of the great sources of magic about the underground for me is that it's this natural time capsule. So anytime you're going underground, into a cave or a tunnel under your neighborhood or, you know, an underground city in Cappadocia, it's you're stepping into like a frozen moment in the past. It never ceases to be beautiful to me. Okay, so time is in one sense frozen. Right. 
because of this feature of the underground, scientists have used it as a natural laboratory to do experiments. And there was this one man who I sort of fell in love with. His name is Michel Sif. He's a French biologist who in the 1960s, when he was all of 23 years old, embarked on this mission where he enclosed himself in a cave in the, the French Alps for 60 days right. as a way of studying what he called the, the natural rhythm of man, which is to say his circadian rhythms, his right. sleep-wake cycles. And he wanted to see if placed in this vacuum how his internal cycles would react and whether they would revert to this primal pattern. And so he had a number of friends on the surface right. who could communicate with him via field telephone. And they were keeping time on the surface. And then he was keeping his own natural time underground. He had no calendar or watch or any mode of keeping time. So he would call them every time he was going to sleep and every time he woke up and every time he had a meal. And he would keep his own chart of wakenings, as he called them. And then the people on the surface would keep the objective time. Right. And he carried on for 60 days. And the rules were they weren't allowed to communicate outside of those very brief... Didn't want to be influenced exactly. or have... So they called him when the 60 days were up. And his subjective time, I think, had fallen behind by like 25 days. To his mind, it was sometime in August. And in fact, it was sometime in September. Time which is, slowed down by half, I, I guess. I, yeah, half. roughly. roughly. I, I don't remember the exact. But uh, significantly. Significantly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I That's became amazing. totally fascinated with that project. And by the way, he spent the next 60 years of his life doing these projects over and over that, again. What's interesting is that, you know, in a very typical French scientist, philosopher fashion, he's not solely approaching this in terms of just the scientific experiment of circadian rhythms. It's also an exploration of consciousness. He comes out talking about these moments of delusion and madness, you know, that in each case there was a moment of like sort of total disconnect. Exactly. From reality. And just the fact that he kept doing this over and over, <laughs> yeah. to my mind, it edged into the realm of like an artistic endeavor. Like he was beyond right. being a scientist. He was kind of trying to tap into something much deeper and more primal. And maybe also spiritual. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about also, and you mentioned this briefly in your book, the monks, Buddhist monks and meditators that might go up into a cave, you know, throughout history. But even a long, silent retreat is in some ways, you know, closing your eyes is going into the underground. Absolutely. In fact, there is a ubiquitous pattern throughout religious practice all over the world where prophets and seers and mystics and shamans retreat into caves, into cave darkness. They subject themselves to total sensory isolation. And in darkness, they have visions or they hear voices from the spirit world or are able to connect with some otherworldly realm. Right. Elijah first speaks to God in a cave. Muhammad first speaks to Allah in a cave. Right. When Moses is hearing the Ten Commandments, God places him in the hollow of a rock. Hmm. Anyway, there are, there are all these examples of this pattern. 
So I don't think Michel Sif would say that he's like a spiritual seeker sure, sure. in any way, but to me that convergence was very palpable. And I, 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 that's why I sort of fell in love with his project. The word spirituality isn't necessarily going to appeal to everyone, but going on a kind of deep journey of consciousness exploration it certainly aligns with right. what some exactly. people call spiritual journey. Exactly. You know, so I did this a very abbreviated kind of weakling version of, <laughs> of Michel Seif's experiment where I enclosed myself. Yeah, in I a, mean, to be honest, I was reading the book and I was like, dude, 24 hours. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but go ahead. Yeah, exactly. So I went, I went into a cave in West Virginia and spent 24 hours in darkness just to sort of see what would happen to follow in Michel Seif's footsteps, however lightly. <laughs> um, I'm just teasing. Yeah. <laughs> I had sensory experiences that I will never have in any landscape above ground. And mm. I was taken out of my normal, ordinary sensory reality and thrust into this alternate space, an alternate mind space. And by modern Western secular ways of thinking, I didn't travel to any spirit world, but I underwent the exact same sensory experiences as any, as Elijah in the bottom of a cave hearing the voice of God. I mean, it seems to me that the experience on some level has to be one of depersonalization of non-self. I mean, that basically because you, all of your familiar markers and all of your familiar orientations and even sort of your own visual access to your own body and the things that kind of anchor you in you are gone. Absolutely. You're out of body. You know, it's unnerving, but it's inspiring. I mean, I remember being in darkness and realizing that I was thinking about my body in a way I never really thought about my body where I could feel all the inner architecture in a more vivid way than, mm. than I ever had before. Like the sort of clenching and unclenching of my heart, my right. lungs kind of ballooning with each breath, that kind of thing. And here's a landscape that is physically so close to us. It's, it's right. directly beneath our feet. And yet when we're, all you have to do is take a couple steps into a cave and spend some time there. And it's like you're traveling to a different planet. You're undergoing sensations that you have no access to on the surface. Well, one thing I just thought about as you were talking was how in a lot of the spaces you've, you've explored, one feature is the intersection of nature and man, humanity. That is, some of the effects that you're talking about are just about the natural environment of being underground, the lack of visual cues to orient yourself, et cetera. And some of, some of the experiences and the wonder of the experiences you've described have been about the way that humans have used these spaces or built things into them. Your question makes me think of a moment years ago in New York City where I went tagging along behind a, an urban explorer here named Steve Duncan, who mm. was sort of my first guide into... Sensei. Yeah, he was my sensei, <laughs> exactly. And he popped open a manhole somewhere in Brooklyn, and we climbed down into a sewer pipe. And it was, at first glance, a kind of repulsive space. There are these things hanging from the ceiling, long strands of bacteria called snotsicles, which is yeah, just Yeah, that was lovely. Vi vivid for me in your book, the right. snotsicles. Um, and, you, <laughs> and you, exactly. Um, and you have this sort of 
funky smell. But running through the water at our feet, mixed in with the flow, was a natural stream that had been running through the island of running through Brooklyn, I should say, forever. And which it was, was once bounded by weeping willows and such, but exactly. is now so in once, a sewer. Once like, ran on the surface <laughs> and is now has been thrust underground. But it humbled New York City for me. It was uh. like it was like looking at the roots of New York City and it was a reminder that, yeah, we've been here for a couple hundred years and have built up this concrete megalopolis, but at the end of the day, there are still these streams and ponds and springs beneath our feet, and this is a natural landscape. So a lot of my early explorations were in New York and then in Paris, but you can look at any city in the world and you find these exciting underground infrastructural systems and these natural landscapes beneath cities. So it really, for me, thinking about the underground changed the way I thought about cities completely. The Paris sections in your in your book are incredible. I, I knew a bit about the catacombs. I did not realize, but of course, there is a whole, no pun intended, subculture devoted to the Paris underground and the cataphils Cat and cataflics are yeah, the cops yeah. that are pursuing them. Flick for the listeners is slang for cop, cataflics and cataphils running around under there and crazy stuff, huh? Like people have done sculptures in the walls and concerts. <laughs> the and... most mind-bending spaces down there. You, It's like being caught inside of the weirdest mystery novel where you're wandering through these tunnels and Every wall feels like a potential false wall that's going to open into a portal that's going to drop you into another hidden chamber that has some secret piece of art that a clandestine tribe of Parisians has been <laughs> building in the dark for generations. It's, it's interesting that it's been made illegal. And of course, that's also in some sense a part of the attractiveness of it. Although you, I know you spent much of your time underground terrified of getting a, caught by cataflics, but... <laughs> right. but <laughs> right, right. But I mean, that's also the forbidden nature of it is, is marvelous. In New York, the threat of getting caught is a little more dire. You really don't want to run into NYPD underground and, and they're not going to be nice to you. They might like beat you they with might, truncheons well, <laughs> or something or, or it's, just, um, it's just super you, illegal. You, or, it's well. super illegal and you would probably end up spending some time in jail. I've gotten caught before and they're really unhappy. I've ended up in court. I've never been cuffed and taken to jail, but I think it's it's a very real... Why is it so illegal? Is it just about the like protection of citizens for their own... Good. This is a na I, nanny state thing? I've, or really? Well, I think it's, it's about terrorism, probably. I think uh, that's one of their main uh, concerns. It's also very dangerous just for, you know, for the, the idiot who's doing it. And to run down a live subway track is a good way to, to sure, get hurt. Sure, sure, um, sure, sure. But what I was going to say is that in Paris, and, you know, Paris has... Since I was doing a lot of exploring there, they've had more problems with terrorism. But before that, to run into Cataflic in the catacombs is actually a, it's never happened to me, but I've heard stories of these kind of friendly encounters where the cataflique are also kind of in awe of this earthy labyrinth beneath the city. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, oh, it's your first time down here. Do you guys want to see something cool? <laughs> and the cataflique will, will lead the, the newcomers to the system into a, you know, a sort of magical space that they appreciate. 
Um, and wow. then there'll be a slap on the wrist and say like, you know, we're not going to give you a ticket, but you should. So it's sort of a playful, it can be a playful game of cataflic and catamouse. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. I, I think um, I think this is a good moment for us to shift to the second part cool. of the show, where we will watch potentially total non sequitur videos from Big Things interview archives and okay. see where we go from there. Cool. Let's um, have Hermes carry us across the threshold into the liminal space of these videos. Hermes can carry me anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> So this first video clip, which we have been asked to watch in full, is Martin Amos, and it's called How to Use a Thesaurus to Actually Improve Your Writing. That's how it's been titled here. And you're clearly a word lover, so this should be fun. Famously, Nabokov said, or infamously, perhaps it's now a synonym for that too, um, said, there is only one school of writing, that of talent. And it's axiomatic that you can't teach talent. Of course you can't. But what you can do is uh, instill certain principles. And the avoidance of ugly repetition um, is very important. Repetition has its uses, and anything is better than trying to avoid repetition through what they call elegant variation. There's no point in using a different word when there's no change in meaning. And it, that's just something that the writer was taught when they were 12, never to use a word twice in a sentence. And they've become terrorized by that and then addicted to a new ingenuity where you, you avoid it. But I'm talking more about sounds and rhythms. The Nabokov novel we know of as uh, Invitation to a Beheading was originally called, not for very long, uh, Invitation to an Execution. Now, as Nabokov said, of course I avoided the repetition of the suffix, so chose to call it Invitation to a Beheading, rather than Invitation to an Execution, which is sort of rhythmically ugly. Um, you've got to think about the bits of the word as well as the word in its totality. Avoiding repetition of prefixes and suffixes, as well as rhymes and half rhymes, uh, unintentional alliteration, etc., can be achieved by anyone simply by using a dictionary. And a thesaurus. People think thesauruses are, are there so you can look up a fancy word for big or a fancy word for long. That's not what a thesaurus is for. Uh, in my view. The source is, you come to a point in a sentence, and it's usually towards the end of a sentence, where you're unhappy with the word you've chosen, not because of its meaning, but because of its rhythm. Uh, and you may want a monosyllable for this concept, or, or you may want a trisyllable. Um, so you look in the thesaurus, you find a simile that has the right number, you know, to, for the whole, whole sentence to maintain its rhythmical integrity. And you just do that by, um, by going to your thesaurus. And also going to your dictionary. Do not use words against their derivation. For example, dilapidate. Um, 
it's fine to talk about a dilapidated building, but not fine to talk about a dilapidated hedge, uh, because uh, dilapidate comes from lapis, which means stone. So, you know, really careful writer will make sure that they're not doing an, an not visiting an indecorum on the on the words derivation. It's very labor intensive. I mean, it takes a long time to sometimes to get your sentence right rhythmically and and to clear the main words in it from misuse. Um, but it and all you're winning is the respect of other serious writers. But I think that's uh, any amount of effort is worth it for that. You were commenting while we were watching about he has a great kind of supercilious tone. He's got this mix of, I've seen videos of him when he was younger mm -hmm. and he was kind of this like young rock star. Badass. Yeah. yeah. And he's got this mix of, in his <laughs> eyes, he's got this mix of just like a sneer and like an arrogance, but also like a little bit of tenderness and vulnerability. You can sort of see it in his eyes. He's like, you can see that there's part of him that's sweet. Yeah, and yet he yeah, really yeah. wants to help you like, become a better <laughs> writer, even if he thinks you're such an idiot. Like, I can't believe you're asking me these questions, <laughs> but like, I do want to, I want to hold you. Part of me wants to hold you, even if you're such a little shit. I, I think time did that. I mean, I. I, you yeah. know, I talked to him when he came in for that video. He was on this show, and I found him to be incredibly sweet. And I thought, so I can still see the the ghost of that bad boy Martin Amis, you know, in the tone and the bearing and whatever. But it's as if time and experience have somehow taught him a certain amount of humility, love, warmth that he at least might not have been willing to show when it wasn't beneficial to his career. I don't know if this should air, but um, I have a cousin of well, mine. You're welcome to forbid me to air it afterwards if you wish, <laughs> okay, but, but, okay. but let well, me know. We can see <laughs> how, it, how it comes out. A cousin of mine was 12 years old and visiting a friend of his who had a place in the Hamptons and they were out on the lawn mm -hmm. late at night one night and kind of like making a lot of noise and there, this old guy who was staying with the family came out was trying to sleep and started shrieking at them and was just like god damn it and he was like some some old british guy who happened to be martin amos so they, 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 they pissed off martin amos as he was trying to to sleep one night and my cousin recalls him being very prickly for lifelong novelists schedule can become very very important it's everything it's <laughs> you everything. need your energy yeah, you need yeah, your focus yeah so we're talking here like in this video we're talking about prosody basically the like flow of language mm -hmm. and it's funny because it's not something that is much talked about. It feels like something, to bring up that hackneyed word spiritual again, it feels like the sort of secret spiritual practice of writing that we kind of all just sort of feel our way through it based on the rhythms we've absorbed from reading. Yeah, Does exactly. Does it feel like that too? Yeah, yeah, you have, you know, it's interesting to hear people as Martin is doing, try to articulate it because it's in a lot of ways, it's something that transcends articulation. You know, it's right. something you just sort of feel. Like you hear a sentence and you immediately say that that word isn't right. It doesn't sound right. And 
and everyone knows it. The word talent is car carries all kinds of baggage, but there is something to be said for that. Like you kind of either grow a writing voice or you don't. It seems. I, I it seems like a hard thing to teach mechanically. I think, I, I think that's true. At the same time, I think that even non-writers, when they hear a word that's a little bit out of place, they recognize like there's something in our deep brain right. that recognizes the the music of a sentence, even if you're not always thinking about it. It makes me think of that John Degata book that was just recently made into a play, Lifespan of a Fact. Oh, okay, called. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard of that. So basically, the book is a kind of weird Socratic dialogue between John Degata and a fact checker who's been assigned to fact check <laughs> an essay he's written about a young man in Las Vegas committing suicide. And ultimately, the book is like a meditation on the nature of truth. But in the very first line of the essay, it says there had been 12 suicides in Las Vegas that day okay. or something like that. The fact checker comes back to him and says like, no, actually there were 11. And John Degata says, yeah, but I like the way the word 12 sounds. <laughs> better. And the fact checker is like, what do you mean? But, but I read that and I was like, well, he's right. I mean, he's absolutely right. 12 works 12, better. 12, 12 is the right sound there. And I'm not making a comment on whether you should be fudging numbers in, in nonfiction writing, but I totally understood what he meant, which is like this collection of syllables sings and the other one doesn't. And that actually has to do, that also has an impact on the semantic impact as well. Like 12 suicides is a stronger, we have a stronger sense of that than 11. 11 right. is slipping away from right. that. Right, exactly. Like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's, I love that. It's beautiful. And I said, I was saying this to you before we started taping that, you know, I read a lot of nonfiction books and, and I was struck by your written voice. I mean, your obvious delight in language is different from even a lot of very interesting nonfiction books. I can see you playing with words poetically and enjoying that. That's clearly a feature of your writing. Thank you so much. It's a weird situation a little bit because I am a writer first and, you know, always wanted to be a writer. And I just happen to be someone who has this obsession with underground spaces. So, yeah, it's just For nice. the listeners who aren't familiar, like you're, you've written in many magazines and... I've written in, in a, a, you know, I'm a freelance writer. I've written in a bunch of different magazines and write about lots of science and history, but just long form journalism. And it just so happens that a lot of these pieces have been about how people think about subterranean spaces. But I came to writing about the underground as a storyteller because right. something about these underground stories just made something inside me vibrate, which is you can't ignore that. And part of it was because I had this personal connection to these spaces from when I was a kid. But another part of it is just that there's something primal about the way we tell stories about caves. And Yeah, we end up talking on this show a lot about stories and narrative and storytelling and definitely definitely these underground spaces are have 
have the feeling of and from the basis of many stories, many novels. You know, I think of Bilbo in The Hobbit going through the cave of Shelob the spider. Or is that in The Hobbit or is that Lord of the Rings? Am I getting that? Um, I can't remember. I'm not sure. Whoever's going through the cave of Shelob the spider or even Mirkwood. Right. You know, the dark, deep woods, which are themselves a kind of cave. And these spaces, they do unlock a kind of that primal story time feeling for us. To the extent that there is some kind of collective unconscious, this narrative of descending into a, a dark hollow and then discovering something or or undergoing some kind of trial and then re-emerging, right. that is something that is absolutely shared. You know, it's in all of our mythologies all over the world, but I think it's just, it, we, we carry the contours of that story like in our deepest brain. And I think there's a part of that that's about fear itself and about, you know, when I think about the squeamishness that might keep people like myself out of a sewer full of snotsicles or whatever they're called, um, snot lag tights or whatever, <laughs> um, <laughs> that, uh, that going down into those spaces, very much like going down into one's own mind in meditation or whatever, is about coming face to face in part about coming face to face with a lot of the things we fear and then hopefully not being killed by them and then being stronger for it. Exactly. And to go <laughs> even deeper than that, it's about death. It's about sure. undergoing a death. I mean, there are, we have burials in the dark zones of caves that go back over 100,000 years, and in some cases much, much longer than that. But we have this very deep association with deep, dark spaces and the land of the dead. And to, to go into a cave... Even if you're not thinking in your conscious mind that you are descending into some kind of spirit world or land of the dead, I think we carry that in us. We have it in our sort of ancestral core where we're going into the other world and then retreating to the surface, changed in some way. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention ayahuasca here, which I've personally experienced multiple times, and that the experience of that ancient and powerful hallucinogen, which is often administered in kind of a like ritual ceremonial setting, you know, many people describe that as that similar kind of journey, a journey downward into something. There can be a sense of, of death. Certainly at the end, there is the sense of rebirth and the sense of having purged. I mean, there's literal purging. People vomit, you know, right, right. Of course, uh, or, yeah. or cry or whatever. Right. But having purged and then being cleansed and transformed as you describe it. To me, it speaks to our shared universal neurological wiring, mm -hmm. which is to say that when shamans in Southern Africa enter a trance and right. they enter their spirit world, they describe descending through a dark space in the ground. When shamans in the Amazon do the same thing, they describe the exact same sort of images and precepts in their mind. And when people in upstate New York are doing ayahuasca, <laughs> they're describing the exact same sensations. One more surprise video. And, sure. Uh, Let's to, do it. To take us out. Yeah, cool. cool. So this is Michael Shermer, who is a famous, he's a writer and he's a skeptic. I think he's the editor-in-chief of Skeptic Magazine. It is called How Trying to Solve Death Makes Life Here and Now Worse. Yeah, Ray Kurzweil, you know, I've met Ray several times. Uh, he's a super good guy. I like him a lot. And I'm glad he's out there doing it. 
in this sense. I'm not skeptical in a cynical way, like I hope that those singularity people are wrong. No, I hope they're right. I hope he does it. I hope he lives forever because that means I may have a shot at it. Whatever that would even mean, living forever. Okay, and, and so when, when people like Ray say to me, Shermer, Shermer, don't you want to live 500 years, 1,000 years? You know, it's like, listen, I'm 63. Just get me to like 80 without, you know, my brain going crazy and I'm losing my mind and Alzheimer's and senility and, you know, get me to 100 without cancer and, you know, get me to 120 without being bedridden. You know, just one step at a time, one problem at a time. That's how progress really happens, incrementally, slowly, um, not this grand, let's aim for utopia. I mean, aim for it, fine, but but just take it one step at a time. You know, cancer, you know, there's like 50 different cancers that kill people. Just tackle them one by one, heart disease, uh, Alzheimer's and senility. You just solve those problems and the, because we know that the, the human body is so complex that if you live to 150 or 200, there may be other things that happen we don't even know yet. I mean, most people 500 years ago had no idea about Alzheimer's other than the handful of people that uh, seem to have lost their memories. But you know, now we realize because most of so many of us live that long. Okay, so that's the problem with um, uh, with that is, is 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 too utopian in their thinking, just incremental steps. And then second, um, my my skeptical my skeptical alarms always go off when the chief proponent of an idea that's going to be the next big thing always says it's in our generation. You know, every religious leader and cult leader in history has always said it's going to happen now in our generation. All the way back to Jesus who said there are some standing here before me now who will not uh, see the end of uh, time before I return. Okay, so, uh, and we're still waiting. <laughs> you know, so, the, you know, when Ray says it's going to happen in you know, 2040, it's within our lifetime. Ray, what if it's 2140? I know you're gonna you're doing all the blood cleansing, but you're not gonna make it, you know, like another century now, and 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 it, but even so, what if it's thirty one fifty, not thirty one forty, a thousand years from now? I mean, yeah, that's possible, but you know, you and I aren't gonna be here to, enjoy it. you know, why sell it like it's got to happen in my lifetime? Because that always, to me, seems like you're just tickling that part of the brain that religions like to tap in, that that sort of egocentric, it's all about me, and I want to continue on in the future. I get that, of course, I do too, but, um, but all the more reason we should be skeptical when the idea on the table uh, being offered to us is, feels too good to be true. It almost always is. You know, not always, but, but usually. Uh, and, so, and there's hardly anything bigger than offering immortality or the afterlife because so here's the problem. We, we are all aware that death is real because we see it all around us. What I, I love about him is that he's not what I picture a skeptic as. Like, he's yeah, yeah. so cherubic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does something sweet about him. Absolutely. He's, he's like a merry skeptical elf. <laughs> <or something. laughs> I agree with him. I'm kind of a broken record because my mind always goes back to ancient myth, but to reach the singularity or to like solve death or however you want to put it is to render those primal myths obsolete without the existence of an other world, without our sense of an opposite space where we are headed. I am here. I am thinking, what does it mean for that to exactly. stop that giant mysterious door of exactly. death. Like, it would be like 
casting out darkness. To solve death is to like, okay, there's going to be no more night. And right. I think we need some kind of elemental balance as human beings. We need there to be a opposite space. Right, or, right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. The upside down. Right, the upside down. Exactly. So Carl Ove Nausgaard, the mm-hmm. Norwegian yeah, yeah, writer. Of course. That was his reaction on this show to this idea as proposed by maybe Michio Kaku, I think, about putting our brains into a computer and, you know, or, or simulating our consciousness. That was precisely his reaction was, I would like to then immediately chop my head off or something because what's the point of life, you know? Right. And my thinking on that is I actually don't like the idea of immortality at all either, but I'm skeptical enough about my own kind of habits of mind or whatever to say, okay, well, that seems like a psychological problem, like a significant problem profound adjustment would be necessary in human consciousness to wrap our minds around the idea of eternal life. Now, would that necessarily constitute what you're describing, like an erasure of everything wonderful and mysterious? I I don't know. But I think if it happened overnight, and that's where I vibe with what Shermer is saying, it would be traumatic. It would be traumatic. <laughs> yeah. It would be it yeah. would be devastating. I mean, like, can Oof. we evolve to that other thing? The question of should we, there's a whole complicated ethical conversation there, but could we? It's hard to know. The image I have in my head is just <laughs> like the Edward Monk, just like, ah! <laughs> screaming. I, I, yeah, it scares you. Like, you don't it, like it. Yeah. It really unnerves me. It really unnerves me. I always think of, you probably caught on to this in in the book, but I always think of time depth when it comes to humanity. We have been interacting with each other and with the earth for hundreds of thousands of years. Right. And so anytime I'm confronted with like a new revolution in in the immediate present or the near future, I just am so sort of skeptical because I think our roots run so deep and yeah. I think that um, that's right that's right and that's the thing I mean the the sort of incremental process progress even though certain technological progress seems to speed up and accelerate over time still it's like the lobster being lowered into the water would be the like cynical (laughs) um, analogy, but the water slowly getting hotter. We adjust, we have time to adjust and we carry what we have from our past. You know, we kind of like have time to evaluate it against what's happening in our present. That seems somewhat healthier than the idea of tomorrow, we shall live forever. We've been human for 300,000 years even when you put, we've been living in cities for a few hundred, we can't escape our humanity. Most of us, maybe all of us, are works in progress when it comes to being good humans, mm. Mm. let alone being good immortals. Being good immortals. <laughs> oh, oh goodness. Yeah. So if we do, though, end up living forever, maybe eventually the outer space, the exploration of the other planets that infinitude right. can can take the place of the mysterious you Absolutely. know possibility that's of a, death and the underground that's a lovely way to think about it and it's an optimistic way to think about it and i think that's right i think let's say we do reach the singularity and become learn how to be good immortals <laughs> that just as far as the construction of our imagination I think we do need that unknown space, and I think it could be up rather than down. 
Will Hunt, this was so much fun. Thank, thank you for being on Think Again today. I had such a great time. Thanks for having me. Will's book is Underground, A Human History of the Worlds Beneath Our Feet, and it is well worth reading. I don't know about you, but the next time I go to Paris, I'm definitely going underground. Those catacombs make Norwegian death metal sound like polka. In Istanbul, there are these ancient Roman cisterns all over the city. Apparently for centuries, people were fishing through holes in their basement floors before anyone figured out what was going on. Next week, I'm on with Mitchell S. Jackson, the author of Survival Math, notes on growing up in the part of Portland, Oregon that's got nothing to do with pilates or farm-to-table eating. I hope you can join me.